You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. Hi, everyone. This episode may not be suitable for all audiences, as we will be discussing the topic of wartime sexual violence in northern Uganda. There will be resources available in our show notes if anyone requires any further assistance. Take care. This podcast was recorded on the traditional, ancestral, and stolen lands of the Musqueam people. We are committed to ensuring Indigenous women's rights to health and safety and the equal opportunity to participate in a manner that recognizes and respects Indigenous cultures and traditions. Hello, and welcome back to the Women's Health Interrupted Field Trip. I'm Dr. Marina Adshade. And I'm Demara Featherstone. Our next stop on this field trip is Women, Peace, and Security, where we'll meet with Dr. Kedi Anyeko, who is a postdoctoral research fellow with the Research Network on Women, Peace, and Security. Okay, so today we have the wonderful Kedi Anyeko with us. Dr. Anyeko's research is centered on women's senses of justice and reparations after wartime sexual violence in northern Uganda. Thank you, Kedi, so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. It's such a delight to have you and to have you here talking about a topic that I think is both your research, but it sounds like it's very personal for you as well. Could we just start? Do you want to talk a little bit about how you came to study women's justice and reparations? Yeah, thank you so much for that question. As a a woman who was born and raised in northern Uganda, the area where I did this main research, I worked with women who experienced abduction by the Lord's Resistance Army rebels in northern Uganda and were kept as forced wives and mothers of rebel commanders' children for several years, 5, 10, 15 years. And having worked with them over the years, I would say close to 18 now, plus the research work I've been doing in the academy, I came to learn that women's voices on what justice means or what reparation really looks like for them were missing in, our, in current debates on these subjects. So it drew me closer to, you know, investigating the topic in more depth and in particular, most of the justice processes in the region were being conducted from a legal lens, and yet the women still remained more or less the same state they were since escaping rebel captivity and returning home, and they were living in poverty, you know, less than a dollar a day, you know, and they have kids that they bore from these relationships. And generally, you know, as someone, I worked as a gender justice officer at you know, the Justice and Reconciliation Project in Gulu. And they mostly came to my office each day with different daily life challenges. Then I started asking myself, what does justice really look like when we have legal trials going on? And yet these various survivors of wartime, sexual violence, forced marriage, you know, and so on, suffering. So it's on that ground that I decided to pursue this topic further to increase knowledge from an academic perspective, but at the same time to improve the well-being of these women on the ground. In pursuing this topic further, have you noticed anything about how different levels of socioeconomic status can affect women's decisions about whether or not to seek justice and reparations, or maybe what types of justice and reparations women decide to seek? Yeah, as I mentioned earlier on that many of them live on less than a dollar a day. And right now in Uganda, in in Gulu district where the research happened, is that 
the poverty level just went up because of COVID-19. And, you know, the first the women experienced the war and now uh, the poverty that the region was experiencing. But also with the pandemic, everything is triple or even, I don't know, like four times the suffering that they're going through. So some of them lack land to till or to carry out socioeconomic activities. Farming is the main uh, agri- uh, economic activity in the region. It's the main source of livelihood. But many of these women do not even have land where they can farm to generate, you know, income to support their families. So poverty is biting really hard. So it is because of this suffering that they have that to me, I would say it's one of the main things that made them come to define justice as something that is lived in the everyday, you know, something that is more than more than or on top of what legal processes of justice would normally do so in particular the women spoke about place-based kind of justice where they are given land uh, um, to stay with their children land to do these economic activities to till to grow to raise animals and sell to do poultry and make money that would help them meet other basic needs of their them and their children the other one is they needed decent housing decent housing they need to be able to pay school fees for their children in schools you know education uh, housing health they spoke about a number of the women returning with injuries from the war some of them have returned they've been home 10 years now but they are still struggling with back aches back pain or some of them have psychosocial trauma and some of them still have bullets in their skin surgeries have not been done to take this out of their bodies and they're suffering in pain so when i was doing this research i would would ask them what is it that needs to be done for you to feel that your life has been repaired or for you to feel that justice has happened i just need these things to be taken out of my body i need treatment i want to be able to get treatment for my children when they fall sick right now i cannot afford it to me that is what justice means so it is because of the daily challenges that women face in the region connected to poor economic status and inability to own property such as land that drove women to come to define their senses of justice and reparations in this in this form you know things that make them live lives of dignity things that make them live life just like anybody else that was not abducted and forced to stay in rebel captivity for all these years I've seen in your research that the women you work with often put the needs of their children before their own when pursuing justice. For example, many of them don't want their abusers to be prosecuted because they provide for their children. Was there any specific situations where you saw socioeconomic status improving for these women and you saw their senses of justice change? Oh, that's that's a great question. Right now, as I speak, I cannot pinpoint one particular case because I I didn't mention this before, but majority of the women actually still haven't had a great improvement in that, especially economic side of it. Socially, yeah, you know, there's a bit of improvement in relationships, but economically, they do try to a certain extent. Actually, women were given skills training so that they're able to do livelihood projects 
and start generating money to support their families and recover and reintegrate the moment they return from rebel captivity. These trainings are being given by rehabilitation centers in the region, and they would give them startup kits so that they can pick up lives when they leave the rehabilitation center. But by the time I was doing the research, many of them were back to zero. And they, were, they told me they sold those equipments immediately because they, the training were short, not enough for them to be able to run a business and earn income. Secondly, one of them told me she had just returned from an abduction of more than 10 years. She was being given training. She wasn't necessarily learning as much. Even when she was given the equipment, her, her mind was not at peace enough to be able to focus to run a business. So she couldn't benefit from it. So I can't really say, oh, wait, they really greatly improved. But my colleagues and I in, in the various organizations I worked in in northern Uganda had a feeling that if women were economically empowered, you know, they were given resources and tools, economic resources and tools and like land and startup supplies and so on and given the training for the type of training they want, they might be able to uh, have interest in pursuing legal forms of justice as well because it seemed to me that if they can't meet their other basic needs, they can't go to court. They don't see the reason to pursue a legal trial. Actually, one of the cases has lasted nearly 10 years. It's not yet concluded in Uganda for one of the former LRA commanders, one of the rebel commanders. But 10 years, how do I feed my children that I gave birth with, with this man? You see? And that has been one of the reasons why I think women define their senses of justice as something a little different from the legal process. But I do think that if the people who are supposed to provide testimonies and evidence are included in the process in a way that their daily basic needs, including these things that I'm talking about, food, housing, health, perhaps they might be more interested in participating in such a justice process because they see the benefit of that. You know, when I was when I was getting ready to speak to you today, I heard firsthand a lot of the stories that were being told by the, the women that you interviewed. And by the way, I love that you're doing this qualitative research where you're collecting firsthand narrative and and people listening to this I would encourage you to go out and, and hear some of these stories yourself but you also say that the act of storytelling itself is good for for women's health I'd love to hear more about that oh yes many of the women that we we had a storytelling project called Ododowa we operated the project over a period of two years with women who had returned they formed their own groups. They were already in an, in an existing women group to provide peer support and so on. But when we came to them to speak to them about the idea of the storytelling, they welcomed it. And these were women who had actually, majority of them said that never told the stories they shared with the group anywhere else since they returned from rebel captivity because they did not find the right forum to share the stories. They do not trust the people who are going to listen to the stories. They fear they're going to be judged. So in the storytelling project, you know, being able to speak out a pain that you're suffering is the beginning of the healing process to me. 
And one thing that the women reported to us from participating in the storytelling project was that they experienced a sense of healing from being able to air out their suffering, the pain that they had in their hearts, the pain that they weren't able to share with anyone because they didn't trust them, not even their family members. Some of them told me that even my mother does not know I went through these things. Some of them had some of the stories from their colleagues in the group during the storytelling session, even when they were all in rebel captivity, to the point they started feeling sympathy for the other having a worst off experience than their own, even when they were with the same rebel group. The women felt the spaces in the storytelling group safe and it was a very voluntary process. So at the end of the day, it was a relationship of crying, of laughing, of friendship, of sisterhood, where the women reported at the end of the project when we evaluated with them, they said that they felt so relieved to have a forum where they could speak freely without anybody judging them and they recommended we replicate the same storytelling initiatives with women like them who are suffering in other areas. The experience of the storytelling itself, where there is an active storyteller, somebody who is doing the narration in a forum which they feel safe and they trust the listeners and they know the people who are listening are going to listen to them without any judgment, made these women feel a huge sense of healing and recovery from that experience of harm and they still remain in the group to date. Another question we have for you is around what you think women's health researchers maybe should know about the research or the different work you're doing. Are there any key takeaways that you think generally women's health researchers should know about about your experience? The number one thing that I would say is that relationship building is very very key and it has to be a relationship that, not an extractive relationship, it has to be a relationship of give and take. You know, a relationship where you are in the community as a researcher with the intent of not just getting data that you need for your own academic or various kinds of researches, but also data that is going to go back to the community and help improve their own lives or improve that, that particular difficulty that they experience that drew the researcher to do this research. Let me see if I could give an example with the women that I worked with. For instance, the women that I worked with in northern Uganda it's a region that is over-researched. They are tired of researchers. They are very tired. They even told me being an insider-outsider in this community made the women trust me enough to tell me detailed stories about their experiences, but at the same time made them very comfortable to complain to me as their own. Like you would easily complain to your sister and not a, a stranger, Right. They told me we are tired of being asked these questions over and over again. And yet we don't get anything back. Look at us. We're living in, a, in huts like this that leak when it rains. You know, we don't even have proper roofs on our heads. But researchers keep coming, to interviewing us, asking us questions. What happened to you? What happened to you? Some of us no longer even want to talk about these things that we experience. 15 years ago, but they keep coming to ask us. They go and we never see them again. They were comfortable to 
complained to me and be honest to me and told me that I need to be able to write about these issues. And even when they complained to me to that extent, I asked them, it was during a focus group discussion, one example if I can give, and then I asked them, now I, I understand that we are all feeling very upset right now and sad because of the experience with researchers like us. And I am really sorry about this feeling and I wanted to ask of course, I, I still spoke to them at length, but at the end of the day, I asked them, do you still want to continue with this focus group discussion or would you rather we stop right now because I'm comfortable with any, because I am here to do what works best for you. And they still wanted to continue even when, you know, I first read it as something that they did not want to, you know, proceed with the process. But they made it very clear. We are telling you because we know you are our own and we want you to go talk about it. And we want you to try and see how you can spread this message. We want research that returns back and also helps to improve our lives. Not that that goes away and we never even see the people ever again. In this case, uh, like being able to, to work with these women was very, to me, it was a success and it went by so quickly because I already had a relationship with these women before I came to do this study. Having worked with them, you know, some of the participants in the research had known them for five or 10 years. So it was very, very helpful for me. But also I want to encourage researchers that even if you're going to the field for the first time and you don't have an existing relationship, it is still possible. I think being clear to research participants about your intents, why you're doing it, for whom you're doing it, how will it benefit them it's an avenue the women in this research besides the relationship i had with them the reason they were very optimistic and welcomed my research is that i approached them as research partners as collaborators not as uh, subjects to be researched i made two trips to uganda the first time i went it was a consultative process you know to seek their views on the research proposal that i was beginning i was just beginning to write it actually i'm thinking of doing this research what do you think do you think is an important area are there other areas you feel i should focus on that are more important to you also told them we're gonna work my host organization in the on the ground the women advocacy network is precisely the women who experienced this violence. They were survivors. My research assistants were survivors. Everybody that I worked with were direct survivors who experienced the harm I was studying. So to them, that was really empowering and made them feel valued. Uh, the other thing I would say is, depending on the culture on the ground, sometimes it's very important to engage with the local community, the leaders of the specific community, because they still have a lot of authority in terms of what, who is talked to and what gets published, what gets out there. I also work with the local leaders on the ground, even when they're not direct survivors of the violence that I was studying. Yeah, I think those are the, uh, the, the few I can mention for now. Well, I think I probably I probably speak for everyone when I say thank you. Thank you for doing this important work. Yeah, I'm kind of lost for words. I know, here. yes. I just think you are such an incredible person, and I cannot wait to see where your research goes in the future. I think 
So many people have so much to learn from the way that you've conducted your research over the years and how you will continue to. And we are so grateful. We have the deepest, deepest gratitude for you. And thank you so much for everything you do and you continue to do and just the person you are. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Dr. Onyeko, for joining us on this journey and to all of our listeners who have been along for the ride. We would also like to thank the UBC Medicine Learning Network, the University of British Columbia, and everyone that has donated to the Women's Health Research Cluster for their support of this project. If you want to help transform women's health on a global scale, donate to the Women's Health Research Cluster today at www.womenshealthresearch.ubc.ca. And if you liked the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe on whichever platform you get your podcasts to be notified when new episodes drop every second Wednesday of the month. And check out our show notes online to dig into the resources we talked about today. Until next time, I'm Demera. And I'm Marina. Thanks for joining us. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 